He's Andy, I'm Larry, he's in Nashville, I'm in Osaka. Hey there! Hi ho! It's been 60 years since the second half of January 1962 when leather clad Beatles still roamed the earth. Well, they roamed Liverpool. Pete still thought he was a Beatle. Stuart Sutcliffe was still alive. And Brian had been managing the Fabs for about a month. It's time now for our segment called Where We Going, Fellas? in which we quickly gauge where our boys are on their journey exactly 60 years ago. I said, where are we going, fellas? And they go, to the top, Johnny. And I said, where's that, fellas? And they say, to the top of most, to the top of most. Right, cheer up. Top of most, top of most, Johnny. When the Beatles were depressed, and the group was going nowhere, and this is a shitty deal, and we're in a shitty revenue. I say, where are we going, fellas? And they go, to the top, Johnny. And I say, where's that, fellas? And they say, to the top of most, to the top of most. And I say, right. And we're all cheer up. Now, they had been feeling down just a couple of months ago. They were almost gonna, about to call it quits. It was like looking bad. Anything new on their minds now in late January 1962? I don't think there's too much new since the last time we talked about this because uh, they weren't feeling quite as bad. Uh, the Decca rejection had not happened yet. Polydor, uh, or Deutsch Gramophone, was about to release My Bonnie in the UK, so they were pretty confident that things were looking up from that downtime. <laughs> so, well, wh- where are the fellas heading in the very near future? Uh, rejections piled up, but they were quickly heading towards a new image, courtesy of the hard work of Brian Epstein. Do they know that yet? Well, they likely knew that Brian was thinking about things like suits for them. But as far as how these next few months would work out, no, they did not know yet. So they're no longer contemplating just giving up beetling at this point. Has Brian made a difference in sort of lifting their hopes and spirits, maybe? Uh, in treating them with care and respect, etc.? Is he empowering them? I think that the boys are pretty happy in general with the direction, though the well-known story is how Brian came in and changed their image. He was in no way a dictator, and he often went to extraordinary lengths uh, to make them happy and to look after them. So more like a trusted advisor than a parent figure, eh? All right, let's, uh, let's call this episode The Mind of Brian. Great! Huh? 
This'll be a brief episode. Two main topics on Beatles 60 today. First, we'll discuss the unloved and inconsequential 45-inch single My Bonnie, which was, 60 years ago, the first vinyl record to have the Beatles name printed on the label. In the second half, we'll try to get into the mind of Epi. Sounds good. Recently, Grant uh, posted about the My Bonnie singles UK release too. One memorable comment came from Sheila a member of both the 60 Years Ago Today group and the Barmy Facebook page, who'd been a teen in 1962 from Wallasey. Her comment was, My body wouldn't have got anywhere in the UK charts. I wondered why they recorded such a naff old Scottish song. Notice, she says she wondered, meaning when it was released, that was her reaction, and probably other teens reacted the same way. Later the same year, 1962, we had at least one Beatle, probably speaking for them all, telling an interviewer that it... It wasn't a very good record. Kids at the time probably weren't excited by Tony Sheridan, who sang in front of the Beatles. The song got no love from anyone. Was it consequential? I mean, did it help them on their journey in any way? Uh, well, first, yay, Sheila. Yay, Sheila. And and I'm sure she sounds exactly like that. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I did a perfect <laughs> impersonation of her. <laughs> That's right. But from a historical perspective, uh, my Bonnie is often thought of as one of the beginning points of the Beatles' career. There's always a romantic notion of the importance of what was first. But in terms of what was actually happening at the time, I don't think it really made much of an impact, uh, starting from the beginning. Hmm. Bert Camfort who signed the Beatles to Polydor Records in order to back Tony Sheridan, had no love for the boys at all. Tony Sheridan was, he felt, the star. The backing band would be called the Beat Brothers no matter who they actually were. Ringo was even a member for a couple of weeks in early 1962. Mm. And though, yeah, and though Paul remembered in an interview uh, that you can hear on the Beatles anthology, that the single made it to number five on the German charts, he was actually a little bit off on that. Hmm. It, it peaked at number 32. Uh, and in the UK, the German import uh, did nothing to increase the Beatles' recognition. The only place where it sold at all was in Liverpool, and that was to the people who already knew who they were. Hmm. Uh, Brian Epstein believed that he could use the existence of the record to help his case with getting the Beatles signed, but the rejections came anyway. Uh, when the single was released in the UK on January 5th, 1962, Brian was able to convince Polydor to release it under the name Tony Sheridan and The Beatles instead of The Beat Brothers. Hmm. A great triumph. A great triumph or, or uh, uh, a so-so triumph? Well, <laughs> something of a triumph. Yeah, well, a triumph in terms of actually getting that name there for the first time, but yeah. You're right. No, you're right. You're right. But it did make little difference overall. Hmm. Um, the single didn't make it onto the chart at all in the UK at that point. Um, and Polydor had very little interest. They didn't promote it. They didn't even try to get it played on the radio. Mm. Uh, moving forward in history, when the Beatles became famous, uh, Polydor obviously wanted My Bonnie to be released all over again, especially in the US. And even then, uh, at a time when the Beatles had exploded and had the top three singles on the US chart, my Bonnie only managed to reach number 26, and the re-release of the in the UK only reached number 48. Hmm. 
So the short answer, too late, is no. My body seems to be nothing more than an interesting name to assign to a moment in history, but it didn't really do anything to help the Beatles progress. It certainly had nothing to do with their eventual signing. Mm. So, but even things that aren't consequential, you're right. That we are marking time, anyways. At least it, it, it did exist, and that yeah. kind of that must have affected their spirits, at least. You know that they had that. You know, I think it did. I think that you know they, as you already pointed out, they they started talking about how it wasn't really that great of a record, and I think that kind of thinking happened after it kind of didn't really sell. Now, how do we get into the mind of Brian uh, in your blog post about how he? allowed the boys to get the upper hand in the contract, how it reflected Brian's thinking, which was filled with self-consciousness regarding his own inexperience, his insecurity, his fear, and so on. Reading that, I felt that didn't jive with my reading. From what I read about his approach, I find it to be enlightened, wise, wholesome, not odd or pathetic. <laughs> Either of us could be wrong, or maybe I'm misreading you, but um, you, you've read the book Cellarful of Noise. Yeah. And so, two questions. If he were alive today and you could interview him, what would you most want to ask? And does his autobiography give readers insight into the workings of his heart and mind? I'd probably want to know um, if he told the Beatles or if he thought that they understood that the management contract that they signed was not legally binding. Mm. Brian had looked at a sample management contract and was appalled. In A Cellar Full of Noise, he said, and this is a quote, I thought it an inhumane document, providing simply for the enslavement of any artist eager enough to put his name over a stamp. He was determined that his contract with the Beatles would be fair. Uh, and I won't go into the details of the contract here. You can see some of them on my January 24th blog post. But interestingly, when Paul objected to a 20% management commission, Brian crossed it out and wrote in 15%. And most importantly, Brian didn't sign the contract himself, nor did he include spaces for guardian signatures of the three Beatles who were under 21, the age of consent at the time. Mm. Uh, in other words, the contract was not a legal document. As for his actions being odd or pathetic, mm. I don't think that's the case at all. And I hope it doesn't come across too much that way that, that I maybe put down Brian a little bit. I don't, I, cause I don't feel that way about Brian. I love him, <laughs> but uh, maybe it was just like a dramatic thing, you know? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, Brian was completely aware of his own strengths and weaknesses, and he had never been in artist management before. He said himself again in a cellar full of noise, even though I knew I would keep the contract in every clause, I had not 100% faith in myself to help the Beatles adequately. In other words, I wanted to free the Beatles of their obligations if I felt they would be better off. Hmm. Your sense of Cellar Full of Noise, do you feel that it is that it's heartfelt or is it publicity? You know what I mean? Is it? I, there could be a bit of both. I mean, in the sense that, I, I mean, I, I, I think that what he was telling Derek Taylor to write was, um, or, or the interview that he had with Derek Taylor when, when they were writing the book, I don't think he was lying. I don't, I think he was speaking from the heart, but that is a very good point that the book was out there to, for a purpose. It, it, you know, it was when the Beatles were first getting famous and it was there to help push that. And the narrative was directed kind of in a way to make it a nice compact story that would read well. Hmm. 
Mm. It's sort of, yeah, th- now this is sort of everything with them kind of in the Epstein era, maybe all the way through even today. There's something about them. People said, like, for example, their latest movie, Get Back, mm-hmm. uh, which came out on Disney Plus that I'm the only person in the world who hasn't seen. <laughs> <laughs> I'm almost through it. I'm almost through it at this point. Yeah. People were saying like, oh, is it packaged? And it is it is packaged. And, and and I got thinking, but all their movies were packaged, you know, all of their. Yeah. It's a Beatle product. So, of course, they're going to be presented in a way. But they've always done that. They're always being presented, aren't they? Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. You know? <laughs> you know, they're kind of genuine, but they're also kind of um, careful. Yeah, I think so. They were so charming that the that the part of them that was genuine was also part of what a lot of people liked about them. So you know. yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> Sorry, uh, you. Were, what were you saying? <laughs> oh, well, the quote from Brian, um, you know, talking about how he was completely willing to let the Beatles out of the contract, which is why he didn't sign it. Right. I mean, that may point out um, a bit of insecurity, but possibly more importantly, Brian Epstein has been characterized by many who knew him as being supremely moral and decent. Hmm. And, And that reminds me of another really interesting thing about the UK My Bonnie release. You know, the UK singles chart was not at the time based on actual units sold. They simply asked top retailers to report their top selling singles and then they averaged the lists. NEMS, Brian Epstein's store, was one of those top retailers. Mm. Brian could have lied about My Bonnie's sales and though it may not have been enough to make it a hit, it may have at least reached the chart. It's unlikely that he would have been caught. He could have argued even that the Beatles' sales numbers in Liverpool were simply because of their local popularity. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and moreover, Brian could have just bought a lot of the records himself if he had to, but he didn't. Mm. He didn't do those things. I think we can all agree that there are a lot of business people who would have no trouble with that kind of activity. But it says something about Brian Epstein that he wouldn't do it. Mm. I wonder what he actually thought of the record. Mm. Mm-hmm. Anyway... Depending on the industry, a business's reputation may matter more or less. Um, I don't know about the social world of early 1960s British record retailers. Um, he seemed to care a lot about the opinions of others in his milieu. He was obviously very concerned with impression management. Is impression management something people commonly know about? Or It's not a term that I use all the time or anything, but oh. it makes sense. <laughs> In social psychology, it just means, you know, it just means making a good impression on people. Yeah, you know, yeah. Taking care of how you appear to others mm-hmm. uh, in, in others' opinions or whatever, you know. <laughs> um, it seemed he was concerned with that, with his grooming, his upper middle class, almost posh accent, his embossed stationery, all that. And even it's like, what was it? Like his cigarette cases or whatever. Everything was kind of fancy, wasn't it? A little bit. Um, yeah, absolutely. Maybe that impression management, his theatrical bent, and the need to pass as heterosexual was all consistent, all of a package, sort of. Mm-hmm. His code of ethics, though, seemed more to do with his business experience, I would say. 
Maybe he was aware that in the record industry, at least in America in late 1960, or, or as late as that, with the payola scandals, the movers and shakers on that side of the industry certainly didn't behave like Boy Scouts. Yeah, right. I don't know about retailers, either on in America or in, in Britain. Um, but Brian's business background seems to have had more to do with retailing in general, I would say, right? Yeah, I can't imagine that he wasn't aware of things like the payola scandals in the U.S., along with other shady practices. And he was well known in the industry for being an exceptional retailer. He was completely upfront with the Beatles at their early meetings that he had no experience in management, but that he thought that his general music industry experience, along with the fact that he had collected several industry contacts, would help him do a good job. Sure. Yeah. Okay, so we have the same sense that his open awareness of his inexperience managing artists doesn't so much entail weakness, but probably something more positive, that he understood his limits. Yeah. He feared letting these guys down, right? He thought the world of them. Yeah, absolutely. To me, his apparent ease when he conspicuously lowered his commission rate shows us that it wasn't for him about money, that he got something out of his work with them that was beyond that. The artist management role returned him to what he would have called theatrical work. Mm. Other, others might call it showbiz. showbiz. But he was always saying theatrical, right? I'm a theatrical manager. Yeah. And, and even like John Lennon on Anthology says it, right? Oh, Brian presented us well. He was theatrical. <laughs> yeah. Right. And he actually bought a theater eventually, didn't he, in London, right? I'm not sure, but I, I can't imagine that he didn't. <laughs> I think he did, yeah. Yeah. Um, we'll get to that. That's about five years from now. Right, exactly. Um, if we consider him for the moment as the fifth Beatle, they seemed internally to be developing a kind of mutually actualizing friendship, both directions. Mm. Uh, there must have been inherent value in that alone, even. I don't see that much evidence that money itself was much of a motivating factor for him personally. He was certainly aware that it was a motivating factor for the Beatles themselves. Mm, sure. Yeah. There are those that argue that Brian's interest in managing the Beatles was completely based on the idea that he lusted after John. Mm. Uh, I don't doubt that it is possible that those feelings existed to an extent. But as for it being the sole reason that he wanted to manage the group, I would side with NEM's manager, Peter Brown, who said, No, Brian was too honest to do that. That would be a mock 
Machiavellian thing to do, and Brian wasn't like that. My feeling is that Brian was looking for something more exciting and theatrical than his retail business, and that he truly loved and believed in the Beatles. He wanted the best for them. And as much as he wanted to be a part of it, he would have been willing to step aside if it turned out that he was failing them, hence the unsigned contract. The fact is, we're going to hear stories over the next few years about bad decisions he made and how he could have done much better for the Beatles' interests. But we'll get into that, you know, when the time comes. Larry, how can we find out what other people may think about this? Yeah, it's a good idea. We should get other opinions or ideas or insights or knowledge, you know, if somebody has something... We'd love to hear what others think of this. Is the mind of Brian 60 years ago simply inaccessible to us now? Of course it is, but we're getting into guesswork here. So, you know, give us feedback. And you can leave voice messages for us. Go to anchor.fm slash Beatles 60. That's B-E-A-T-L-E-S-6-0 and tap the message button. You'll see it right away. Yes, yes, great. Do that, do that, do that. <laughs> the Anchor page might prompt you to choose a mic. Um, it works better with a smartphone or a tablet than a PC. Unless you specify otherwise, we're going to assume that we have your permission to include the audio in a future podcast. Also, the featured link this episode <laughs> is my pathetic Beatles 60 Tumblr. I don't use Tumblr that much, uh, but I make little posts about the the podcast with each podcast episode. Right. Now, usually we're, we're, we're offering you links to stuff that you'll find interesting, listener, dear listener. But in this case, we're asking only those who are already on Tumblr just to kindly visit it, follow it, and reblog some of the posts. Uh, we'll include the link in the show notes, B-E-A-T-L-E-S-6-0 dot Tumblr dot com. So Tumblr users... Please go check it out right now or actually after you finish listening to this. Yes, we're almost finished anyways, right? Yeah, right. Tumblr, it just needs more visibility in the network. So help me out, boys and girls, girls and boys, maybe. <laughs> I'm not on Tumblr right now, but maybe I'll join. Oh, cool. <laughs> spread the word. Yeah. <laughs> maybe you can spread the Tumblr on Twitter. That's right. Yeah. Ooh, that would be fancy. So, uh, what are the coming attractions? Uh, well, we've got uh, the Beatles getting measured for suits mm. on January 29th. They're not going to be wearing them for a little while because they, you know, had to be made. And then some fun times in Manchester coming the first week of February. Oh, uh, so those are two significant leaps coming up. They probably don't know how big leaps they are. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> But they begin to develop their suited mop-top image at the end of this month. That is interesting. 
and they make their first appearance, albeit low-key, in Manchester early next month. That won't seem like a big deal right away, but the big city farther up the Mersey, connected via canal, is a media center, and although they don't know it yet, it's eventually going to give them the nationwide publicity they've been wishing for. Small steps to big things. Right, definitely. Of course, they're getting signed to EMI eventually this year. A few months. A few months down the line. A few months away. Uh, so does London and Manchester kind of make them nationwide names at the same time, or is it is Manchester first? Manchester's a little bit first because they're actually, you know, um, even on the radio before they're signed. So it is an important step. It definitely is an important step. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. two weeks for the next podcast episode you can hang out with us every day of 1962 by checking in to barmy beetle blog where each day you get andy's historiographical posts that draw on a large cross-section of beetles literature yeah link in the show notes and on facebook check out grand heaton's superb photo curation from exactly 60 years past every day in our group Watch the Beatles evolve each day. Go to the Facebook group. You go to Facebook, then you choose groups, and then search inside groups, search for it was 60 years ago today, and 60 is 60. A picture tells a thousand words, and he writes entertaining and informative captions for every image. So usually you get a long quote from a reliable biographer or biographers. Usually it's Mark Lewison, but there's more. Be sure to open the photos to see unique captions for each photo in an album. Search It Was 60 Years Ago Today. Andy, I'll, uh, I'll give you the last words. Take us out. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, next time, speaking of Manchester, we're going to have a couple of great special guests to talk about Manchester. I'm really excited for that one. Yeah. Take care, Larry. I'll talk to you soon. And until next time, everyone out there, be safe. safe be safe. safe, 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 safe. Bye.
This is Brian, or Epi, as the boys are fond of calling me. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Beatles 60. The Beatles, at their heart, are storytellers. I'd like to invite you to go even deeper into their story by listening to another program called A Day in Their Life, an audio drama of the Beatles' story. Both Andy and Lawrence agree it's simply marvelous. For details, visit Beatledrama.com or see the show notes for this Beatles 60 episode for the link. Thank you.